Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you in your work for His Kingdom. Thank you for coming. Um, I hope that you're viewing the next few days not just as an experience, but as a chance to invest in the future of your school and in the learning of your students. Uh, so thank you for taking these, these days out to make that investment. This is the beginning of the conference, and so it doesn't feel like the time slot in which we should be trying to fix things yet, trying to arrive at solutions, trying to pull things together. This feels like the hour to try to figure out what it is we're going to learn in the next three days to get us pointed in a direction that might be helpful. So that's what I'm going to try and do for an hour. Um, you might have noticed that the conference has a title. Uh, it's called Reimagining Practice. And I'm assuming that, that that wasn't a whim three weeks ago, uh, but was the product of some thought and some discussion and some forward planning uh, among a thoughtful group of people. So why would you put on a conference at this moment in history for a large group of Christian schools folk and call it Reimagining Practice? I think there are some reasons why this theme might bubble up at this moment. And yet there are some temptations in that word practice because the way that word works in our vocabulary, if we grew up in the West, is that we tend to contrast the theoretical and the practical, where the theoretical is the thinky stuff, it's the beliefs, it's the perspectives, it's, the, it's where you get your ideas straight, it's where you sort out your theology, it's where you figure out the frame, and then the practical is just writing tests, grading papers, organizing furniture. It's not thinky stuff, it's just, it's just what you do. But that's not what the word practice means in a lot of the relevant conversations that I think are, are framing this conversation. Think about a Christian practice like the Eucharist, communion, breaking bread. It's a core Christian practice. Now, imagine you've got two weird friends some of you might not need to imagine. <laughs> but uh, one of your friends loves words. And they're really interested in the Eucharist. And so they spend a lot of time studying the passages that talk about the Last Supper and that talk about what Jesus told his disciples and, uh, and the bits in Paul's writings that refer to it. And they read Luther and Calvin and they've got a whole theology of the Eucharist and they, they've actually got this antisocial habit of going around explaining it to people all the time um, and uh, sort of bringing it up over beer. And so, but, and so they, they talk about the Eucharist an awful lot but they never actually drink wine and eat bread. Those people are not engaged in the practice of the Eucharist. And you've got this other weird friend who sort of fell off the other end of the train. And uh, this person just several times a day loves going to the fridge and getting out the grape juice and a loaf of bread. And uh, just pouring some grape, grape juice and a slice of bread. It's their favorite snack. Um, but while they're doing that, they never really stop to think about what story that might be connected to or what beliefs might go along with that or what theology it might connect to. They're not doing the Eucharist either. People who are doing the Eucharist have to have a certain story going on. They have to connect it to the body of Christ being given for the forgiveness of sins, but they also have to chew, and they have to swallow, and they have to taste it going down, 
and they have to do it together with other people in a place where people are gathered together in community. Otherwise, it's not the Eucharist. So a practice, it's, it's not the place where you take your theories, you take your beliefs and you apply them. A practice is the place where your story and your actions live together in a single composite thing, where you're eating bread and you're drinking wine, and in eating bread and drinking wine, you're remembering the giving of the body of Christ and the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you can't tear those bits of it apart. So when we talk about reimagining practice, that's, that's just a first thought that we need to try to keep in our mind what practices are. Practices are not the opposite of thoughts. Practices are where stories are embodied. Now, why are we talking about practices right now? Again, I think there's a history to this. If we go back a few decades, uh, there was a, a famous book in North America, very influential, by a guy called Mark Knoll. It was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. It came out in 1995. Anybody read this one? Yeah, a few people. This book became particularly famous for its first sentence, which I'm sure might have felt unfortunate to its author, because uh, I'm sure he wanted us to read the rest of it as well. But the first sentence became a bit of a cause. The first sentence of the book said, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there is not much of an evangelical mind. And so Martin Knoll's complaint in this book was that what we seem to have arrived at in evangelical culture was that we had a lot of evangelicals who could quote Bible verses, who could go to prayer meetings, who could witness to their friends, who knew how to find their way around a church service, who had positions on a few moral issues, but apart from that, didn't seem to be able to think very well. Didn't seem to have very much to say about any complex issues of the day that didn't reduce to a quick bit of prejudice and opinion. And he was concerned that the evangelical church wasn't building an ability to think in ways that were Christian and nuanced and complex, complex and adequate to the issues that we're facing us in the world. And so this book was just one visible part of a movement that became very concerned with developing a Christian worldview, a Christian mind, a Christian perspective, a Christian way of thinking about things. And this started to affect schools. We started to realize that having a Christian school might not just be about having a prayer meeting at the start of the day, having a worship service, making sure that kids behave themselves, having a uniform, that you might need a Christian perspective on the different subjects in your curriculum. You might need to teach things out of a Christian worldview, out of a Christian way of thinking. And this movement generated a large literature. There's around 10,000 articles over the last 45 years in a whole array of Christian peer-reviewed journals that have come out of this attempt to do Christian scholarship, to think in Christian ways about a whole array of issues and figure out what a Christian perspective might be on whatever's going on in 20 different disciplines. A few years ago at the Kaiser Institute where I work, we surveyed those articles, all 10,000 of them. And one of the things we found was that less than 5% of them had anything to say about teaching and learning about students, about formation, about classrooms, about how we change. We developed almost 10,000 articles articulating Christian positions on things, and almost no articles looking at the practices that we engage in in classrooms that shape us. So we'd kind of answered Martin Knoll's call to develop an evangelical mind 
But developing an evangelical mind didn't seem to have helped us to develop a Christian pedagogy. There was still a gap. Now, just by the way, this doesn't mean that you quit trying to think about a Christian worldview, right? That would be kind of like giving up buying toilet paper because you realized you're out of breakfast cereal. Um, which, if you think about it, doesn't work. Um, so, uh, that doesn't invalidate this. It just might mean there's, there's something else we've got to work on. So there's, there's, there's been this growing sense for a number of years that talking about Christian ideas, Christian mind, is not going to get us all the way there. Here's another way of looking at the same problem, a piece of research that came out just the other year in Christian Scholars Review from some folk at Bailey University in Texas. And this was a study of Christian faculty at tertiary institutions. Uh, in North America, where I work, there are over 100 Protestant evangelical Christian universities that are part of uh, an umbrella organization uh, that represents kind of the, the more conservative evangelical end of Christian higher education. And uh, Nate Alleman and his colleagues did a survey of faculty in these institutions. They managed to get survey responses from 48 institutions covering a range of different theological positions and they got responses from over 2,300 faculty. So this is a pretty good research sample of Protestant evangelical faculty at Christian colleges and universities in North America. This is sort of state of the art, what we know about what Christian professors think. There's a book coming out later this year by them with Oxford University Press. Now, one of the questions they asked in their survey was, does your theological tradition influence your worldview? So I'm going to ask you to do something really difficult in a moment. Uh, so get ready for this. I'm going to ask you to engage in a conversation with the person sitting next to you and keep it to not more than 20 seconds and then come back to me, all right, so that we get done by coffee break. So, um, so first question, if you were to ask a large representative cross-section of the Protestant evangelical college faculty in North America, does your theological tradition influence your worldview, what percentage said yes? Tell your partner. Okay, thank you. Some of you speak dialects, apparently, that have really long numbers in them. Um, so, you said, whatever number you just said, our survey said that about four out of five said yes, about one in 20 really wasn't sure, and the rest said no. I think four out of five is a pretty decent number. I don't know if those ones on the right-hand side are, are like trying to undermine the program or whether they just teach first-year computer programming and they can't figure out how to make the connection. Um, so um, next question. Does your theological tradition influence your motivation? What gets you out of bed in the morning? The reason why you became an educator? What drove you into the classroom? How many do you think said yes to that? Tell your partner. Okay, now you said, another very articulate number, the survey said, 
that about four out of five said yes, and about one in 20 wasn't sure, and the rest said no. Next question. Um, does your theological tradition influence your ethics, right? Your personal ethics, how you teach about ethics, your sense of moral issues, of right and wrong, of justice and fairness, right? Does your theological tradition influence that? Tell your partner. Very good. You started quietening down before I interrupted. Excellent. Okay, our survey said... This is not actually a different number. About four out of five said yes, about one in 20 wasn't sure, and the rest said no. You know, in surveys, differences of a few percentage points are usually not a real thing. If you're really, really good at math, you might be noticing a pattern emerging. Four out of five, one in 20, Three out of 20. What if you ask those same people about their teaching goals and their teaching methods? So does your theological tradition influence the way you actually design teaching and learning, right? The, the way you arrange classrooms, the way you plan for learning, the kinds of questions and student arrangements and so on. Uh, what about that? How many said yes to that question? Tell your partner. Okay, here we go. Now, there's a few things that are kind of interesting to me here. So, first notice that we've managed to quadruple the number of confused people. <laughs> right, so four times as many people are confused about this question as about questions about worldview, ethics, and motivation. Right? Um, and in fact, we also noticed managed to perfectly split the vote between the yeses and the noes. So what this row actually tells me is just collectively we're really confused about this. This is objectively the thing that Christian faculty are most confused about, um, at least out of the things they asked about on this survey. Maybe they're confused about other stuff as well, but uh, within the survey, this is, we're just kind of clueless about this one. Um, I want you to notice as well that we managed to halve the number of yeses. Now, again, I said before, sometimes in survey research, you know, people try to build arguments on a difference of 2 or 3%. That's just noise in a lot of uh, survey research. But a 40% difference, that is probably a real difference. Right? Now, the third thing to notice is that you can't argue that these people in the bottom row are the people who didn't go to the ITEC conference. They're the people who didn't read the book, who've never heard Rod Thompson. Right? They, 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 these are not the people who have not been part of the conversation because this is the same people, 80% of whom said, yes, my theolog theological tradition influences my worldview. This is not a different group of people. This is not the ones that don't get it. It's the ones that do get it, who've been part of the conversation, who've read Mark Knoll, who've been to the conferences. And still, less than half of the number who say that they have a Christian worldview think that there's anything Christian about the way they plan their teaching. So again, this is just another piece of evidence that somehow, over the last few decades, the efforts that we've engaged in to try to think Christianly somehow haven't helped us to teach differently. Just in case you think this is an American problem, because I'm not sure it is, 
First time I came to Australia was a convention very much like this one in Sydney at the Sydney Convention Center in 1996. Anybody at that conference? Yeah, it was a good one. Um, I was impressed by the sharks at the aquarium, but I remember the conference as well. And uh, here's a thing that stayed with me from that conference. I remember one of the plenary speakers that year was Tom Sign, who had written a book called The Mustard Seed Conspiracy. And one of the things I remember about his plenary, which made quite a big impression on me, in fact, I bought the cassette afterwards, which dates the conference. But uh, in, in his plenary, Tom Sign, I remember his, his, his repeated line was he said, we're preparing our students for the wrong future. He said that schools, including Christian schools, through the kind of curriculum they offer and the kind of exhortations they give students, are implicitly preparing students for an imagined future in which they're just going to continually increase in prosperity and mobility. We're preparing them for the dream that Western consumerism is just going to keep expanding indefinitely and that your lifestyle is just going to continue to improve, your standard of living is just going to continue to improve, your professional success is going to continue on an upward trajectory, you're just going to be more and more successful. And that's the kind of the imaginary, the, the imagined future that we're building for students, and it's the wrong future. And it's not a particularly Christian vision of the future to say that the purpose of schooling is to increase your capacity to consume. I found it kind of an inspiring talk. It got me thinking. And I walked out of that session and I walked into a sectional. I was a language teacher at the time. So I went to the section for language teachers. And it was very practical, very hands-on. It was a collection of activities for language classrooms. And the one that stuck with me was the presenter spent some time explaining an activity for practicing numbers in French or whichever language they were teaching that involved having students go through this elaborate game to guess the price of the vacation in Hawaii. And I had this moment of rather profound cognitive dissonance. I'd just walked out of this inspiring plenary where Tom Sign had been telling us we're imagining the wrong future and we need to learn to build a form of Christian education that's not a form of baptized consumerism. And then when I go from the stirring words down to the nuts and bolts, what should I do in my French class on a Tuesday morning, what I should do in French class on a Tuesday morning is get students to guess how much it costs to go on vacation in Hawaii it sort of felt like there was a bit of a gap between the big ideas and the way that we were imagining our practices, the way we were imagining that boring nuts and bolts stuff, how to teach kids numbers in French. Now this, what I've just been narrating, I think is reflected in a comment that I heard from a teacher just recently uh, where I live. We've been doing some research for the last few years in a network of Christian schools, so I've spent 30 odd hours in focus groups with teachers and parents and students and one of the teachers in the school, we were discussing technological changes in the school, he said this. He said, I think it reflects the journey that Christian education has been on. I'm by far the oldest in the room, and I've watched Christian education move from what do you know to what do you believe, and finally, so how are you going to live differently? And I think that's been the journey we've been on as a school as well, and adding technology has been a part of that too, moving from what do you know to what do you believe to what are you going to do with it? He felt like he'd, over a few decades, he'd seen the school go from, we need the students to know their Bibles, Bible knowledge, making sure kids know what's covered in the curriculum, making sure they can repeat Christian knowledge, to this worldview emphasis, trying to develop a Christian mind, Christian perspectives on things, and now to trying to figure out how you actually live differently as a result of all of the above. Dear children, 
says 1 John, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. This is a worrying verse for someone who makes his living by speaking. Here's some words. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. A year or two ago, I was talking to a student. I'm going to call her Jane. It's not her real name. Who was telling me about a class that she'd been in. And she said at the start of the semester, at the beginning of the school year, that, that her instructor in the class had begun with this kind of inspirational welcome, kind of like we just did for the conference. And had talked about how, you know, as we come together to learn this year, we're a Christian learning community. And we're all part of the body. And the eye can't say to the ear, I don't need you. We're here to encourage one another, rebuke one another. We're supposed to function together as a body. That's what a Christian learning community is. And so each of you is made in the image of God. Each of you has got gifts from God. And so you need to come to class every day. You shouldn't skip because you're part of a learning community. We need you to be here. You're part of the body. And Jane said to me, she said, I actually thought this was kind of inspiring. She said, I hadn't heard a teacher begin a class this way before. And so I hadn't really thought about that. Like, I used to just kind of come to class to get my grade and, you know, find out what's going on. So I thought this was actually kind of a, a neat thought, you know, that I'm, I'm not just here to sit in class. I'm part of this Christian learning community. And then she paused. And then she said, you know, it took me about two or three weeks to figure out it wasn't true. Because the way the class was actually taught, she said there was a lot of lecture where we sat in straight rows facing the front, and it didn't matter whether I was there or not, because if one of my friends got a good set of notes, I could borrow them the evening after, and I'd be up to speed. And it would make no difference whether I was in the room or not. She said most of the time when we had discussions, we were in rows facing the front, and it was just people answering the teacher's questions. We didn't really interact with each other very much. She said, and I couldn't think of a time in the first several weeks of the semester where an idea that I had would have changed the plan. It didn't matter whether I was there or not. In fact, I found that if I skipped class for a couple of days, the teacher hardly noticed. So it took me a couple of weeks to figure out that the beautiful talk was just beautiful talk. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You know, it's risky quoting Christian language in a classroom because you use these beautiful words and it suddenly makes you accountable for the practices that you engage in to be the right practices for the story that's in the words. Otherwise, students start realizing that it's just bumper stickers. This verse doesn't quite say what I want it to say. If I'd written it, it would have said, Dear children, let us not just love with words or speech, 
but with actions and in truth, then it would be okay if I love with words and speech most of the time, right? As long as I apply it every now and then and at least come up with one example of, a, of, of like do something once a month, um, then I could you know, mostly make do with the words and speech. Um, here's the other way in which I would have written it differently. I would have put truth on the other side. Because in my imagination, truth is a property of sentences. Right? You say things that are true or false. You have doctrines that are true or false. You have theologies that are true or false. And yet, apparently, the person who wrote this verse thinks that truth is a property of actions, not so much of words and speech, and that actions and truth go together on one side, words and speech go together on the other side. Notice words and speech are more or less synonyms. They're a parallel. Seems like actions and truth are a parallel on the other side, that something becomes true when you live it, when it becomes a set of actions. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I don't think he was saying, I'm a really good sentence. So how could we help Jane to have a better experience in class? Remember, a teacher at the start of the semester has just said, we're a learning community. We're a Christian community. We're all in one body. You all matter. You're all made in the image of God. You've all got gifts. Well, I started thinking about this a few years ago in a literature class that I was teaching. And one of the things I was having students do, we were reading a poem every week alongside whatever else we were reading, and I was having students journal about it. So each week, they'd read a poem, we'd interact around it, and then at the end of the week, they had to submit a journal in which they reflected on what the poem meant, they told me how they'd interpreted it, how they thought it spoke to their life, what thoughts it was provoking for them. And I would collect these in each week and give them some feedback. I didn't grade them until the end of the semester. We spent 14 weeks practicing getting better at this. But what I started doing after a while was, about every four or five weeks, asking students to choose one or two of their journals that they thought had turned out okay, and post them to our online classroom space. And then the homework for that week was to read the other students' journals and bring them back to class the next day and discuss them. So during that week, the reading wasn't the famous poet we were reading. It was what the other students had said about the poems. And what struck me when we did that was how surprised many of my students seemed at how their fellow students had been interpreting the poems. It, it seemed to be genuinely news to them that everybody else had not interpreted it the same way they did. And yet we'd been sitting in class together for four or five weeks discussing these poems, talking about ideas. They ought to have noticed. And so it started striking me that what was maybe happening in class was that my students were mostly focused on listening to what I had to say because they had to get that down in case it was on the exam. And when they shared what they had to say, they were most concerned that I heard it because they needed to impress me to make sure they got a good participation grade. But they weren't really paying that much attention to what other people said. They were using that time to get ready for what they needed to say next so that they could continue to impress me in the conversation. And when we actually slowed down and took time to read what each other was saying, suddenly we noticed that there were other ideas in the room. I wonder if that had happened in Jane's class for two or three weeks, whether she might have started cutting this instructor a bit of slack about it maybe being a learning community. It's a simple little change. A friend of mine in Grand Rapids, Mark, teaches religion at a local Christian secondary school. And he was talking to me a year or two back about how his practice in class had been to start his religion class with a quotation on the whiteboard from some great Christian thinker to kind of prime them for the topic of the day. 
And for the first few minutes of the class, he would have students journal in silence. And he would have a prompt like, in your journal, reflect on what C.S. Lewis says about heaven and hell, whatever topic they were talking about. And you have students just journal silently for a few minutes. It's a good practice. You're likely to get a better discussion afterwards if you actually give students a moment to think. But he started to realize that what he was uncomfortable about over time was that he just kept seeing journal entry after journal entry after journal entry that started with the words, I think. And he started to wonder whether what he was implicitly teaching students was that what was really important about C.S. Lewis was that I had an opinion about him. And that as long as I had an opinion, I was playing the game right. So he decided to flip it around. He still used the quote at the start of the class. He still gave students some time to think. But he moved the journaling activity to the end of the class period. And he made the prompt for the journal activity be, who did you learn from today? And he found students started to write journal entries about, well, I really liked how Joe put that thing we were discussing partway through. I didn't realize that Susie had been thinking about X. And he found that over time, as students actually came to expect this as part of the routine, that students were anticipating that at the end of the class, they were going to discuss what they had learned, not just from the teacher, but from other students in the classroom. They started paying attention to each other in a different way. The classroom dynamic changed because the students were primed for actually paying attention to the other voices in the room and not just to the teacher's voice. It's a really small change. Again, none of this is heroic stuff. right? This, you, you don't have to tear the school down and build a monastery. Um, this is just figuring out how to tweak the moves so that what you're doing in, a cl in the classroom turns into a practice that carries the story that you're trying to tell. Think about how we read scripture, like Psalm 6 maybe. Let's read Psalm 6 together because you've been quiet for a little while and I'm talking too much for virtue. Let's read it together. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. My soul is in deep anguish. How long, Lord? How long? Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Among the dead, no one proclaims your name. Who praises you from the grave? I am worn out from my groaning. All night long, I flood my bed with weeping and drench my couch with tears. My eyes grow weak with sorrow. They fail because of all my foes. Away from me, all you who do evil. For the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies will be overwhelmed with shame and anguish. They will turn back and suddenly be put to shame. I've learned a lot about how to read the Psalms from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian uh, from World War II. Bonhoeffer says that if you read the Psalms and if you read them seriously, like starting at chapter 1 and going through Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, and not just pulling out your favorite that fits today's whim, um, before you've read more than about four Psalms, you will run into one that you can't honestly pray. It turns out that if you try to make the Psalms texts about what you're feeling, it doesn't work. Because you'll come to a Psalm like Psalm 6. Now, I'm not speaking for all of you here, but for myself, I did wake up pretty early because of jet lag, but I didn't spend the whole night crying. I didn't drench my couch with tears. My eyes are not growing weak with sorrows. I'm not particularly conscious of being surrounded by enemies here in Adelaide. You all look kind of nice from here. 
Nobody's attacked me yet. So my bones are not in agony. My soul is not in deep anguish. How long, how long is kind of a theological concept right now. It's nice that the Lord accepts my prayers, but I'm not filled with this burning desire for my enemies to be filled with shame and anguish at this moment in time. This is not my prayer. This is not where I'm at. Of course, there's other mornings where I'm really fed up with the world and you get one of those horrible, crazy psalms just when you least need it. So when I first became a Christian, I became a Christian as an adult into a sort of evangelical student kind of setting. I learned two strategies for dealing with this kind of psalm and with this kind of Bible text in general. Um, Nobody actually explained these strategies to me. They were just the practices of the people around me, and I imbibed them by being part of a Christian community. Strategy number one was to abridge like crazy. This is how you read Psalm 6 if you're using strategy number one. Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger. Have mercy on me, Lord, for I am faint. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in my soul. Turn, Lord, and deliver me. Save me because of your unfailing love. Weeping, tears, sorrow, foes, evil, weeping. The Lord has heard my cry for mercy. The Lord accepts my prayer. All men must be in shame, anguish, and shame. The great advantage of this strategy is it makes the Bible way shorter. Um, You get through your devotions in a quarter of the time, and you don't have to worry about all those disturbing verses. As long as you just look for the promises, um, you'll be good. So this is one of the ways I learned to read the Bible, was just to have this kind of promise radar going on, to be looking for the uplifting verses, and just kind of mutter through the ones in between until I got to the one that I could put on the inspirational poster and that would carry me through the day. Um, Because after all, the entire purpose of the Bible is to make me feel better this morning. Um, So uh, strategy number two was to spiritualize like crazy. So I come to Psalm 6 and I go, you know what, I don't seem to have a lot of enemies right now, but... Um, I do have this kind of excessive appetite for chocolate, and that's kind of like my enemy. Um, So maybe I should pray that that will be turned back and suddenly put to shame. And you know what? I'm I'm not in deep anguish this morning, but I was feeling a bit fed up after supper last night. So um, so maybe I should just pray that God will cheer me up. In other words, take it and just shamelessly water it all down, trivialize it, and make it match up with minor details of my life, um, and make the words not mean what they mean in the original context. Um, which is another way of making the Bible really short and friendly. Bonhoeffer gave me a third strategy. What Bonhoeffer says, he says, if you read the Psalms, and if you start with Psalm 1, Psalm 2, Psalm 3, Psalm 4, before you get five Psalms in, you'll find a Psalm that you can't pray. And that's when you realize that the Psalms are not for you to give you a mirror of your emotional state right now. The Psalms are the prayer book of the body of Christ. And you might not have been weeping all night last night, but somebody in the body of Christ was. And you might not be surrounded by enemies right now, but somebody in the body of Christ is. And your bones might not be in anguish this morning, but somebody in the body of Christ got up this morning and doesn't know how they're going to get through the day. And this is your chance to pray with them, because this is what they're praying this morning. This is your chance to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, to join in with prayers that aren't your prayer right now. So when you get the praise psalm and you feel miserable, it's because somebody else just got good news. That changed the way I look at the psalms. Now, what does it do for my preparation for class if I get up in the morning and I read Psalm 6? 
And I say to myself, who in my school got up this morning and was the closest to this experience? Who's afraid to come to school this morning? Who thinks they're going to get bullied before the first class starts? And spend some time in prayer for them before I embark on teaching for the day. How might that reposition me for my day? What if I did devotions like this? I actually met just recently with a whole group of middle school students, 11, 12-year-olds, and I told them exactly what I just told you. And I said to them, what would it be like if all of you decided every morning to read a psalm, the next psalm, and just stop and think about who in the school is afraid this morning? Who in the school is rejoicing this morning? Who in the school is angry this morning? And you prayed with them. I said, wouldn't it be cool if you got up this morning and you were terrified of coming to school that you knew that everybody else in the school community was going to pray with you when that part of your experience came around in the Psalms? That no matter what you're experiencing, the rest of the community is praying that prayer with you. You're not the only one who's experiencing that. I wonder if Jane had come to this class where the instructor was talking about being a learning community and they'd maybe structured devotions this way. I wonder whether she might have come to the conclusion that it sounded true. Might she have found this community thing a bit more promising? There's a chance that she might have started to internalize it, that she might have started to realize that this was actually what she needed to grow into as a student, that this wasn't just a teacher practice, it was a practice for students to take on. Like another student that I spoke to a couple of years ago who shared with me that after a year in Christian college, he was starting to become uncomfortable with the way in which life around him was organized for his convenience. He lived on a campus where there were people hired to prepare meals for him in the cafeteria. There were people hired to take out the trash. There were people hired to keep the grounds and the buildings clean. There were people hired to teach classes for him, to run the administration, to make sure the finances were all square. He was surrounded by people who were being paid to serve him, and he thought this might be bad for his spiritual formation. So he decided that in the next semester, he was going to adopt the intentional practice of making sure that he got to know at least a couple of people who worked in the cafeteria or in the grounds crew, found out who they were, found out their names, found out what they were praying, found out what their needs were, found out whether he could serve them. Now, this struck me as a pretty mature thing for a Christian student to be thinking. I suspect that most of his fellow students hadn't quite landed there yet. I wonder how we could help them. How could we help students imagine, reimagine the practice of being a student? Because it's possible to do that at a really young age. I mean, this was a college student, but a few years ago, I was visiting a Christian school on the east coast of the US, a school that's very intentional about its practices. In fact, tip for afterwards, we made a half-hour documentary film about this school. If you Google a shared space, a shared space, you'll find a video with that title on Vimeo that's the, uh, the, the half-hour documentary about this school. You can watch it for free. But one day I was in this school and I squatted down next to a seven, eight-year-old child who was painting a picture on an easel in the art space. And I asked the foolish adult question, what are you doing? Fully expecting the answer, I'm painting a picture, silly. And the student put their head on one side and thought for a moment and then said, you know, the theme that we're trying to learn about together this semester is such and such. And then within that, for the last month, we've been focusing on this part of our theme. And the way that my painting relates to this part of our theme is like this. 
I thought, wow, in this school I can go up to a random seven, eight-year-old who's working on an assignment, and I can ask them what they're doing, and they can tell me how their assignment relates to what all of us are trying to achieve this month and this semester. I wonder if I came to your school and picked out a student at random doing one of your assignments and said, what are you doing? I wonder if they'd be able to tell me why they were doing it and how it related to what everybody else was doing and how it was part of a community project to try to grow and learn. What would have to be true about your practices for me to be able to do that for your students? Because I know that in this school, it's a school where the teachers meet together at the start of the year and plan out their curriculum together on a large write-on wall. Which themes, which images, which metaphors they're going to use, what's going to frame everything they do. And then they're very intentional about inviting students into the story of where it is we're trying to get to this semester and how we're thinking about that. Now, of course, Jane is also a technology user, so we've got to factor that in here somewhere, because she's got a phone and a laptop, possibly a tablet. And of course, one of the things people are worrying about about technology is what it does for community, how it gets us all staring at our own screens, telling our own stories. Now, the last few years at the Kaiser Institute, we've been doing a large empirical study on digital technology in Christian schools. We've been working at this for the last five years. The book comes out next May uh, with all the findings in it. We've done a pretty detailed sweep of a Christian school system. We did 36 hours of focus groups, 75 hours of classroom observations, six longitudinal teacher case studies, multiple surveys of every human being in the school system, and I have 28,000 school documents on my hard drive covering a 10-year period that have all been coded and analyzed. So this is a pretty deep dive into what's going on in a set of Christian schools around technology. And one of the things that started to fascinate me in this data, among many other things, there's a lot of different stuff going on in this study, but one of the things that started to fascinate me was that there were some teachers in the school, remember the teacher who was telling the story, he said, we started out with what you know, and then it became what you believe, and then it became what are you going to do about it that some teachers, when they talked about being a Christian teacher, when they talked about faith and teaching, used a lot of worldview talk. They they'd very, much, very much invested in that paradigm. That was the part of the story that they were, they were invested in. Those teachers, when they tried to think about what was Christian about using technology, they tended to focus on the ideas that students were going to access through the technology and how to help students be critical about them. So their basic logic was students are going to use laptops to, to, to access websites and information online and various sources. Those sources are going to have a worldview. We need to teach students how to critique that worldview. And that was how they thought about how faith might be relevant to teaching with technology. Whereas those students, those teachers who had moved more into this third part of the story of like practices, what are you going to do about it, were tending to ask themselves questions about how do we use technology and how is that shaping us? Not just what information do we access through technology. So it was sort of fascinating to me that depending where you get stuck in this this whole attempt to describe what being a Christian teacher is about, it makes you ask different kinds of questions. So an illustration of that is one class that we, um, we heard about. We talked to a teacher who'd been teaching a, uh, a class in Reformed Systematic Theology and Apologetics. And partway through the semester, a student had brought in a local newspaper article. Now, this, this school was located in, in a pretty conservative and very Christian community. And somebody had written an article in the local newspaper arguing that it would be a great thing for the community if a mosque were to get built, because people needed their horizons stretched. And we were way too ingrown and conservative. And it'd be great to have some diversity in the community. And God really doesn't care how you worship or where you worship, um, as long as you worship. 
So a mosque would be a great addition to the, the rich panoply of worship spaces in the community, which was just way too Christian. So a student had found this article in the newspaper and had brought it into the Reformed Systematic Theology and Apologetics class to see what the teacher thought. Now, just stop a moment to check the back of your own mind here. If anything's starting to happen in your mind, what, what, where are you thinking the teacher might go with this? What happens next? Right. How might the teacher respond to the student bringing this article into the apologetics class? Well, this teacher had been thinking a lot about practices. And so what he shared with us, he said what bothered one of those kids was not that that piece was written, but the online responses that were coming back from the Christian community, they were harsh, they were angry, they were ugly, many of them. And we talked about that in class. First Peter 3, always be ready to give an answer, but do this with gentleness and respect. So we talked about how do we respond? What can you do using this tool to bring change to the world for Christ by bringing some grace? He says they talked about the truth questions and Christianity and Islam. It's not like he quit talking about that but the emphasis that emerged was not just do we have the right beliefs, do we know which people are right and wrong, but what do Christian practices look like in an online space? How should Christians conduct themselves on an online discussion board? And is that what we're seeing as the local community has discussions about controversial issues? We saw parents and teachers struggling with this sense of how students need to grow with technology. So talking to parents, we found that parents were very nervous about pornography. They were concerned about cyberbullying. They were concerned about excessive use of social media and screen time. So one parent said to us, this is a perfect time in fifth grade to talk about bad things on the internet because they talk about health now and we start talking about sex. So this would be a good layer in fifth grade to be like, side note, internet pornography, internet bad things. So when we talked to parents, we found that they had this imagination going on where the internet has good things and bad things, the bad things are mostly pornography, and so the way to use technology Christianly is to make sure you separate the bad things from the good things and teach the students to avoid the bad things, and the school had some extensive filters in place that were helping to keep that out. Um, they had a filtering and monitoring system. And we heard students internalizing this story, so when students talked to us about the internet use, um, students knew that if they were in class doing research and they stumbled across something inappropriate, they were supposed to close the lid of their laptop and call a teacher over. They knew that there was stuff they were supposed to avoid. They were clear about it, they knew it was wrong, um, and they could tell us stories about stumbling across it. Everyone knew someone else who was looking at porn. Um, but, uh, but then, when we actually spent 75 hours sitting at the back of classrooms, watching teachers teach and watching students learn, what do you think the most frequent abuse of technology was in a classroom? I wonder. Tell the person next to you, I'll give you 20 seconds. What was the most frequent abuse of technology we saw? <clears throat> okay. Um, one of the administrators we talked to, he said, you know, the funny thing is, he said, in 10 years, we've had maybe one inst incident of a student getting caught trying to access porn on a school computer. He said, the filters work pretty well, the students know that it's all monitored. If they're going to access porn, they're doing it on their own device at home. It's actually a home issue, it's not a school issue. Uh, it almost never happens. 
He said, but shopping in class? All the time. We saw this all the time. In fact, here's what one of the students said to us in a focus group. This student was describing to us, now get this, this student was describing to us why it's a good thing to be able to learn with a laptop in Bible class, right? Why it's a good thing to be able to learn with a laptop in Bible class. In some ways it's good, because you can obviously type faster on your computer, and you can take notes faster, and you can share them faster, and email faster. Also in that class, because once you get your notes done and the teacher's talking, you can go shopping or do whatever you want. So the great thing about laptops is you can type faster than you write. That means you can get the assignment done quicker, and then when you've done the assignment quicker, you get more time to go shopping while the teacher's talking, right? In Bible class. The administrator we spoke to, he said, you know, the funny thing, in the 10 years of our technology program, I don't recall one parent coming into the school to complain about materialism. He said, but I think that's a bigger danger for the Christian school crowd right now. Now, think about the practices here, right? This is not about whether the Bible teacher is teaching the right theology. The student is engaging in practices, first of all, that speed them up. So is it a good thing in Bible class to be going faster, right? To be getting the ideas down quicker, to be getting the worksheet done quicker, to be moving on faster, to be reducing the amount of reflection time. And then secondly, they're engaging in practices where the fruit of going faster is I get to go look, go on shoes.com while the teacher talks about the Sermon on the Mount. Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. It, it started to seem like in some of these classes, we had this scenario where the teacher was doing lots of words and speech, but the actions, the practices that the students were engaging in were on this whole other formation trajectory. And it didn't matter how good the teacher's theology was. That's a little strong. I'm sure it mattered. I'm sure some message was getting through the noise. But still, if we didn't think about the practices, the words might not be doing their work. Now, some teachers had solved this. They'd solved it very simply and very effectively, and in a way that would have made Jane happy. Because some teachers had figured out that if you stopped treating digital devices as things that individuals use, you actually got rid of a lot of problems. So if you assigned a research project and had three students to a machine instead of one student to a machine, then suddenly one student couldn't go shopping because the three of you were working together to find the research. One student couldn't start playing video games. It reduced the, the distraction behaviors to almost nil just by deciding that we were actually going to learn together, not learn individually. Whereas those teachers who had set up their classrooms where every kid had got a laptop and they were just given an assignment and every kid had to go and complete their own assignment, those are the classrooms where we were seeing all the distraction behaviors. So again, maybe this whole being a learning community thing might help us with technology, to use it fruitfully for learning. Because we certainly saw some great things going on with technology in the school. The message we took away wasn't stop using devices. The message we took away was it matters what practices you build around using the devices. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, 
But all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit so as to form one body, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. This is some words. But if truth goes with actions, if practices are the place where words and actions go together, if practices are the place where the story of Christ dying for our sins and the chewing and the swallowing and the being together and the handing the elements to each other all make up the practice of Eucharist, what might, what might make up the practice of Christian community after you've read about it in Corinthians? Is it that you talk about community a lot? Or it's a frequent chapel theme? Or that you try to be nice to each other? How's it going to work its way down into the way that you structure classroom learning? The way that you approach reading assignments? The way that you use laptops? The way that you structure devotions? the way that you ask students to listen to each other, whether you do the reflection at the start of class or the end of class, what the prompt is for the journal entry. That's where there's a chance that it might turn from words into practice. And you might start to be able to build a Christian educational practice. Now, of course, this is just one example because community is not the only theme in the New Testament. So it's not like if you nail this one, you've done it now because there's all kinds of stuff going on in the New Testament, right? This is not the whole of Christianity. It's just an example of what it might mean to take one moment in our faith and reimagine our practice so that our actions become syllables in the story that we're trying to tell. What if Jane was just regularly experiencing as naming our faith and then engaging in pedagogical practices that sustain the story that we're telling? I wonder what she might internalize from that. I wonder how we could help her not to end up cynical because she has beautiful words and then figures out two weeks later that they're not really true. I wonder which practices we might need to reimagine this week. We've got three days. Three days. That's a lot of time and not very much to reimagine our practices. I'd, I'd like to encourage you to do one thing. You're going to hear a whole bunch of people talk about a whole bunch of different things. Way more than your brain can handle. Don't go away from the conference just inspired. And with, with, with you, know, this, you know, the vague after conference sense of like, I'm going to change everything. <laughs> right? And then you get back to school and the chairs are still where they were when you left. Start even now thinking about one practice in your teaching that you think might need to shift, that might not be a set of moves that narrates the kingdom of God, that might just be the way you inherited doing school. It might just be what's been done to you and you always thought it was okay because you've never really thought about it, and start thinking about it. And use that as your tool for listening to all the different talks and presentations that you're going to encounter in the next three days. And keep turning it over and try and figure out what you can glean from each speaker to try to reimagine that practice. And go away from this conference with at least one practice that you've got some leads on, that when you go back to school, you're going to start reconstructing it. You're going to start moving it in a different direction. If a thousand people did that, imagine. Thank you for listening. <laughs>